I don't know, Dave. Why don't you tell me? Um, Great. Yeah. Uh, there's Craig again. My friends, what lays before you is the myriad knowledge of an unfathomable universe. Join our intrepid remembrancers as they explore the heresy as history. From deep within the farthest reaches of the great library of Tiska, we are the Heresy Grad School. So said the War Master in his wisdom. Go forth, my sons, and illuminate them. Well, welcome back, listeners, to another episode of Heresy Grad School, where we cover heresy as history and update you on all awesome things. So I think we're starting off with just a little bit of housekeeping. Um, Dave, do you want to kick it off? Yeah, I will. Um, just give me one second here. Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, so definitely. Um, this is going to go back into the very first episode of Heresy Grad School uh, that we did for the Xana incursion. So going back and cleaning up something that I should have mentioned um, in episode one, but it actually fits really nicely into where we're going in episode three, or I should say lesson three, right? So we're going to cover today, page 62 to 64, the feathered messenger to false war. But before we get into all that, the road to um, Xana's sort of sedition, the road to Xana's um, secession was sort of long and, and convoluted. And it wasn't until about 008 M31 that really there was a definite um, sort of military action that, that marked them out for censure. And this was the Gilder's Grave uh, raid on, uh, well, the mining world of Gilder's Grave. And so this, this raid on the mining world um, comprised of both an attack on a trader fleet in orbit and then the complete annihilation and destruction of a loyalist force um, on the surface of this mining world. And what's really cool about that is it sort of marks Xana out as neither in the, you know, in the Warmaster's camp or, you know, right on the side of the emperor. So they're still sort of their own, um, you know, they're, they're, they're trying to be their own sovereign forge, right? They're trying to carve out their own empire uh, amidst the, the growing galactic civil war. But this Gilder's Grave um, incident, uh, which was, if you go back to page 56, sort of last paragraph there, um, we talked about it. But what we forgot to talk about, what I forgot to talk about, was on page 76 and 77, we have the Knight Atropos from House Malinax. And it's so cool because it's the first time we've seen House Malinax. And it's the first time we've seen um, a Knight Atropos. So this Atropos on page 76 is Matanari, which in um, kanji or Japanese, feudal Japanese, means adjacent. So I'm assuming that this knight would have been, you know, right next to you before you could do anything and then... Whoosh, just cuts you with its, um, you know, multitude of weaponry. But uh, it says here on page 76, the Mechanicum Knight Atropos Matinari pick capture identified the assault on Gilder's grave, leading element of attacking knight detachment, sub-engagement, the raid on the yellow atoll, suborbital transcript, transit depot, in 008 M31. So this would have been after they broke through the um, the trader uh, fleet in orbit and they went down to the surface of Gilder's Grave to the Yellow Atoll 
um, or potentially the suborbital transit depot. Not really sure where that would have been, but it would have been a loyalist uh, stronghold. And then on page 77, it goes on to say, the raid on the world of Gilder's grave is the first known example of the Xanite Mechanicum forces conducting an aggressive military operation to their own ends. Engaging both traitor and loyalist auxiliary forces in open battle in order to achieve their aims of looting the mining world of its resources and heavy machinery. The vanguard of the Xanite forces during this attack were several maniples of Mechanicum Knights, at least two of which have been identified as belonging to the sinister House Malinax. This was a force which the defenders of Gilder Grave, Gilder's Grave could not hope to match in firepower or resilience, resulting in a complete massacre of local forces. So that's really cool, guys. Um, I just wanted to clean that up because it's been bugging me. And every time I go past this page, I'm just like, oh, man, got to go back and talk about House Malinax. And we'll talk about House Malinax a little bit more um, later on in our coverage of the Xana incursion. But right now, that's where we should be. So housekeeping done on my end. All right. I guess let's get on into it then. Do, 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 do. Intro goes right here. Patrick, remember. Yay. Okay. All right, Dave. All right, guys. So, getting into it. Last time we spent a lot of uh, the lesson on, you know, finding out where Xana really was, right? The far um, western reaches of the um, Segmentum Pacificus. Right, right on that intergalactic void, and how they were located during the Great Crusade, and then sort of the Great Crusade itself, right, which was very much an enemy without unifying theme. So, the Great Crusade itself is kind of about the enemy without, right, the Xenos, the exi existential threat to the uh, the nascent Imperium and the human species, and so. We talked about the Frawl, we talked about the Rangda. Um, Xana played a huge part in both of those compliance and xenocides. But now we're going to talk about the enemy within. And so <laughs> the Great Crusade, I mean, was the enemy without. But the Horus Heresy is, is all about the enemy within, right? It's, it, it's the... Um, you know, the traitor in your midst, you know, uh, the betrayal of a, of a brother. Um, and so it's this is so perfect for where we're going with Xana because everything that we talk about from here on out, guys, is going to be cloaked in shadow and um, intrigue, right? And so we're going to talk a little bit about this. But I, I want to tee it up because if you read it straight through, um, there's sort of, uh, it it's, doesn't really make a whole lot of sense, right? It's hard to kind of go back and link all the pieces together. So what I'm going to do now is a little bit of a spoiler, but on page 66, I'm going to read a call-out box called Fragments and Suppositions. And what this is, is um, it's how we know the things we know about the Xana incursion. And it's the unreliable narrator. It's the, um, it's the unreliable testimony and everything else. And this is the story of the Horus heresy, right? This is the unreliable narrator. This is um, just the secrets that lie still in the shadow. So without further ado, Fragments and Suppositions. Much of what is known to the record about the incident known as the Xana Incursion is a dossier assembled from the diverse and incomplete secondary sources. These include the Akashak archives of the Amphion recovered from her hulk after the Battle of Triton, the harvested data looms of the Xanan exile Savant, Mortififa, Turul and the apocryphal appendix to the Tears of the Gorgon, an allegorical and now prohibited treatise associated with 
the redacted chapter of the third founding. The primary source file of the operation held within the seal and office of the Sigilite and the Divisio Sicari were lost during the dev devastation of the Siege of Terra. It is also certain that during the duration of the Wars of the Heresy, the operation was itself kept secret by the orders of the Sigilite, even from Imperial High Command. As such, while there is good evidence to suggest that the real traitor embassy had somehow been compromised, intercepted and replaced by covert Imperial forces, so that can't, cannot be contested, it's also highly likely that the individual masquerading as Roxal Corridon was in fact Endrid Har, an outcast not from the Sons of Horus, but the World Eaters Legion, who remained loyal, but for the provenance of at least a thousand Legionis Astartes accompany, accompanying him remains a matter for some conjecture. So in general consensus, it's, it was this force undertaking what was in effect to be a suicide mission with little hope of recovery or rescue, um, even if success was achieved. Uh, it was Endred Har and his loyalist forces um, that through just sheer grit and determination uh, wanted redemption and death and uh, were willing to go to any ends to achieve it. So just how Endred Har survived, uh, which he did, because uh, we know he was present in the later Solar War, uh, also remains unknown at this point. Of equal enigma is the depth of the Dark Angel's involvement. Um, but perhaps most unknowable and disquieting um, in regards to the Xana incursion is the horror which erupted on Xana II after the Archimagos and the attack of the Dark Sovereign. So that is where we're going, guys. And that's sort of um, how we know what we know about the Xana incursion. The Xana incursion. Death has reared himself a throne, in a strange city lying alone. Hell, rising from a thousand thrones, shall do it reverence. Unknown poetic fragments collected in the Lexus Dramaturica, circa M2. Part 3, Flashpoint to False War. And uh, yeah, at this point, I'll turn it over to Jason for The Feathered Serpent. Thank you, Dave, for that lovely setup. So, guys, uh, kicking off here with the Feathered Messenger on page 62, if you're following along with us, the start here kind of outlines some of the very interesting, uh, almost like bureaucratic details. Because like Dave was mentioning, uh, Zana starts off the whole Zana engagement starts off as kind of a, almost like a cold war between the back and forth between, um, well, uh, more obviously Dorn and uh, Malkador kind of, you know, coming in behind him like a uh, jetpack parent and helping to sweep up the problems, and uh, Horus on the other side. So... We talked last time about how they were both trying to nudge Zana in the direction of an alliance. Uh, much like a pair of dog parents trying to figure out, you know, which parent the dog likes better. And here, Zana really has the pick of what it wants to do because it's this massive forge world with an incredible output that everybody wants a piece of. And to start off here, the Feathered Messenger speaks specifically to this interesting path that Horus takes. Uh, and he doesn't send a priest of Mars. Uh, you might think he would send somebody like Regulus, like he did to Kelbor Howe, but he goes a different direction. Uh, this time he sends a guy named Unvakar Noon. He's actually one of uh, the uh, Lodge Priests of Davin, and he's described as an individual bedecked in strange feathered raiments and the bones of the dead. 
And this guy comes and offers the Lords of Zana more than just like the same goofy threats from Dorne and Malkador. And he offers sort of the same thing he does to Kelbar Hall, uh, you know, in unshipping the vaults of Moravec. Uh, here, just like some of the other like large uh, trader forge worlds we've talked about, uh, Serum, Cyclothraith, uh, these forge worlds that are kind of large and they want their independence from Mars. And this is probably why, in part, Horus's gambit with the Mechanicum doesn't sync up as well as it should. Because while something like two-thirds of Mars has declared for Horus, and he has these massive uh, forge worlds like Zana, Sarum, Cyclothraith, uh, these renegade forge worlds are kind of distrustful of Mars, even though the majority of Mars is also for the Warmaster. So just like up until this point he's done with Mars and some of these other forge worlds, the Warmaster sends these promises of not just like, you know, building their empires larger, but also this freedom of experimentation out from under the Treaty of Olympus. Um, so he sends this guy, uh, Unvakar Noon, to inform the Vodian consistory that they will find like their, you know, sh even though way out on the edge here, they're still ostensibly shackled to, you know, the Treaty of Olympus and what Mars wants them to do. But um, Noon tells them that under the new Imperium, uh, they will no longer be used and bled dry by an emperor who cares nothing for their power or their prosperity under horus they would flourish and be rewarded for their service so completely out of the gate they're going to be done with restrictions of the emperor's technological edicts uh played off as something to keep them in line to make sure they're not a challenge to the burgeoning imperium uh now ostensibly these were put in place to avert you know old knight rolling around again but if that's the real reason, it's kind of up to debate. So that's completely gone, uh, the machine cult dogma, as long as they constantly supply war machines and weapons to the traders. Now, what's interesting here is the Vodian consistory and the controlling Archmagos of Zana are in secret, while dealing with Horus, still speaking with Malkador's emissaries to see what else they can kind of weasel out of them which is kind of entertaining in the end. But uh, speaking of feathered messengers, uh, Pat, I believe you had something interesting to tell us about this guy. Yeah, so let's let's take a second and kind of just break down essentially just the sentence that describes um, Unvakar Noon, where they describe him as, you know, an individual bedecked in, strange feather, in a strange feathered raiment in the bones of the dead. Um, that is very reminiscent to um, if you guys remember when we were talking about the core in the deeps, um, Horus sent uh, an emissary or Davenite priest from the Raven Lodge to go out and indoctrinate um, the Rackendor, which was a rogue um, night, night house um, that then became house Earthane. And there their livery now is of is essentially of ravens. And so it, it made me think, you know, feathers, ravens, maybe, maybe we'll see more and more in, in the black books, uh, Horace using lodge priests and maybe even specifically, uh, the Raven lodge as, as emissaries and embassies, you know, it's just kind of interesting how, how this book plays so well with some of that coronet deep coverage. Yeah, absolutely. And I was just remembering back to deeps and I think Jason, correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't like a version of Regulus or maybe it was Regulus himself. Wasn't he sent to Mazepa? Didn't they like, they he smoked was. him. Yeah, they threatened to because he was met by a Mezuin battle sphere, yeah. which uh, I think we posited was a <laughs> tiny, non-copyright infringing Death Star. 
Yeah. So maybe they learned from that or maybe the war master learned from that. Maybe he was like, don't send Regulus to negotiate for Forge Worlds. I don't send, know. Send something more fleshy. It's a possibility <laughs> he has a bad rep by this point. Yeah. I mean, isn't the whole stipulation that he essentially is just copied over and over and over again? He just has tons and tons of bodies. That's one of the prevailing theories. Yeah, but I mean, maybe... Well, I mean, so the Davenite Lodge priests, the majority of them are latent psychers. So there could also be the part of, hey, maybe we send a psyker who might be able to have the ability to manipulate somebody's mind into joining our side. And also, you know, a simple human form is a lot less threatening than a fully augmented human, you know? Yeah, but to who? I mean, he's meeting a council of Archmagi. I mean, if, say, Horus for some reason sent, you know, Abaddon, I'm sure they'd still cower a little bit with transhuman fear, but, you know. I mean, would they? My Archmages certainly don't cower to any sort of Astartes. I mean... Mechanicum are here to put the fear of mechanical god into Astartes. <laughs> Admittedly, it doesn't work out all that well in the fluff occasionally, but, uh, you know... Yeah, I'm not quite not sure why either. Astartes went out so many times. <laughs> it's because they're the poster kids. Of course they are. Everybody loves to play Space Marines. Mm -hmm. All right, so All let's right. get back to what's going on with Zana and not Regulus. So down here uh, towards the bottom of page 62, we're looking at Flashpoint. Um, so we're looking at the... Oh, I just realized there's a tiny typo here. Uh, it says at the closing divisions of 009M21, which would be way in way in the past, I think they mean M31, uh, the bargain between Zana and the War Master's Proxy was in its final stages of conclusion. So the Zana has promised basically billions of tons of war material uh, as part of their sort of fealty to Horus. Now, what sets them apart from every other Forge World, including Mars, up until this point, is the gift that they send out of the gate is like their first show of loyalty to Horus. They send him three separate uh, Ordinatus Minoris siege engines. Now, uh, any Mechanicum player is well familiar with these things. They are hilarious. They will... They will knock huge swaths in an enemy army, and uh, you need to uh, play crazy numbers of points. It's something like, I want to say 4,500 or so, probably yeah. more. It's, it's probably at least 4,500, but yeah, and it's also a great tour. way to lose friends. Yeah, well, <laughs> I mean, if you're playing 5,000 point games, I mean, it's kind of no holds barred. I mean... But, yeah. So uh, the Vodian consistory gifts Horus with three of these things, and they're said to specifically dwarf the firepower of even the mighty diamantine siege engines that had fallen into the grasp of the Iron Warriors or earlier in the Horus Heresy. Now, if you guys remember those things, uh, they were a gift from Lionel Johnson to Perturabo, which is this whole other entertaining rabbit hole of why the lion would ever trust Pert. But um, so uh, three of these guys uh, named Mithrax, Nepothax, and Asherax after Terran deities long, uh, long dead of worship. Now, um, when describing the Ordinatus classification engines, uh, at the top here under Ulator, they describe how they're city burners and fortress breakers without compare. And something I want to draw attention to, it says they're armed with a magnum beam lance, matter cyclone, or rad conflagrator. Now, if you check out the Ordinatus Minoris rules, 
Magna Beam Lance, probably the Bellicosa Cannon that you get on the Sagittarius, I want to say. And then Matter Cyclone is probably the Sonic Weapon on the Ulator. However, we do not have anything that can be considered a Rad Conflagrator, which honestly sounds like a giant version of an IRAD engine, which is possibly, well, now that Graviton imploders have different rules, the thing that Space Marines most fear from a Mechanicum army. So, what, guys, what do you think? What is a Rad Conflagrator? Is it like a giant Titan-sized Rad engine? Because that would be spectacular. Yeah, I mean, it, it's got to be... I almost imagine... What's the... Like, I can only imagine like it like it has its own even like flame template because don't eat, the small rad engines actually have have flame templates if I remember correctly. Yeah, um, they're uh, twelve yeah. inch torrents. I imagine something very similar to the solar Augs- or to the uh, Malkador Infernus, but like on steroids and pumped up to twelve. Like, right, like like a hellstorm template, but like bigger somehow yeah like you have maybe... to play long ways on a board you can't otherwise it just doesn't work is how i figure it it was like three hellstorm templates yeah and you had to flip them like you did with a barrage weapon that would be hilarious yeah jeez. that i mean that alone would be horrifying especially for for really big games right Astartes need to fear a mechanical god. Yeah, god. It's good stuff. So, anywho, uh, less wild speculation, more me reciting history here. So, what's interesting, too, is this is different. None of the other Forge Worlds so far, including Mars, has pledged an Ordinatus engine to Horus. Um, so it's seen as something almost like an underhanded uh, barb, almost, uh, towards Kelbor Hal, who still has his few ordinatus, like, very firmly under Mechanicum control. And so possibly this is Zana trying to start out and almost become Mars' rival in the Traitor's uh, not just yet another kind of subordinate bunch of Mechanicum. So, to talk a fun extra bit about that, I'm going to turn it back over to Dave. Oh, thanks, Jason. Um, this is, again, another example. Black books really do um, sort of talk to each other, talk back and forth uh, within itself, right? So, if you go to page 80... Um, you have this beautiful two-page spread of the Ordinatus Minoris Ulator Asherax. So this is one of the three Ordinatus Ulator pattern that were on Xana. Um, This is Asherax. And I'm not going to talk too much about it, but I'm going to say that uh, the records that survived uh, the heresy and sort of give us, you know, a little bit of context into what the Ulator was, um, suggests that uh, it's this Ulator, specifically the Asherax, is built around a colossal sonic destructor. So this is sort of your classic directional sonic transduction generator um, I think when most people put the model down on the table, this is what they're putting down, right? This is what they're playing. And really does massive amounts of damage to combatants as well as armor. So what this does is it generates a hyper-destructive wave pulse that resonates with the force equal to the mass of the object struck. So it's really just sort of pulling those um, individual um you know molecules apart right just this through sonic um wave pulse is just sort of deconstructing this at the at the the atomic level um and it's fucking devastating man this will destroy super heavy tanks at just as easily as legionis astartes 
um, just as easily as, you know, your humble infantrymen, imperial auxilia. So this uh, weapon rivaled the destructive power of the, the Titans of the Legio Titanicus, the God Engines. Um, and really, Xana was one of the few forges that could produce this relic of, of sort of old knight. Um, it's, a, it's, it's sort of one of these basic weapons mounted on a tractor unit. I don't know why we've never seen one of these on a Titan because, man, that would just be so cool. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's, I guess maybe it's too big to be mounted on um, anything less than maybe an Imperator class Titan. I don't know. Um, but uh, this is the uh, Ordinatus Minoris Asherax. And uh, I'm going to stop there because I don't want to spoil what's to come. Jason, Pat, back to you guys. All right. Well, uh, checking out a little bit deeper uh, towards the emissary of the uncrowned king. So, um, I appreciate the war master here does not trust everything in this alliance with Zana to a single priest of Davin. So he actually sends along one of his own warlords. Uh, he is a chieftain of uh, the uh, Catalan Reavers named Raxel Corridon. And Corridon has kind of made a name for himself in the Sons of Horus uh, from Istvan III. Uh, first there and then into the drop site massacre and leading more than 20 dark compliance actions as Horus is rolling back across taking things that he formerly, you know, brought into compliance for the Emperor. So uh, Corridon here has made a ton of these dark compliance actions towards the northern regions, reaches of the Segmentum Obscurus. Uh, now, he is definitely known as a favorite of Horus, and he's known as this vicious, prideful, you know, warlord who has just an incredible amount of experience here. And it's really kind of the, you know, iron fist to the contrast of the less threatening Davenite Lodge Priest. So sending in there is definitely a threat behind the, you know, easier to deal with Lodge Priest. Now, uh, two, it's something starting out. Um, Roxel Corridon's uh, Grand Cruiser that he shows up in the Zana system is itself, too, a show of power. Uh, if you guys remember back to our Coronid Deeps coverage, there's a Gyrian-class Grand Cruiser called the Cicatrix Tyrannus. Now, this was taken as a prize by the traders during the Battle of Port Maul. She used to be a fleet defense vessel uh, for Port Maul, and where she was once white and golden, now her hull is scorched black and pitted by the fires of untold void battles since her fall from grace. So the Cicatrix comes with this large escorting squadron of frigates, uh, eight of them, and four Isos-class fleet tenders. Now, these are small, warp-capable vessels that are armed, but they're really designed to ferry supplies to warships in frontline service. You know, rearm, rearm, or things like that. But... As part of the Warmaster's opening gift to Zana, uh, within these ships are hundreds and hundreds of these armored cargo pods. And within those are wreckage from Istvan, Momid, and Autosrat, and other battlefields where the Sons of Horus had fought other Legionus Astartes and had achieved victory. So in these containers were fallen Astartes from those legions that the Sons of Horus had fought and beaten, along with tons of tanks, war machines, arms, and armor from these different loyalist legions. And all of this isn't just junk to the Mechanicum. It's not just corpses. It's technology and gene craft and an insight into the development of other forges and even 
of the impact the uh, emperor's plan to create space marines in the first place and it's just this treasure trove of lore and techno arcana for them and because now they are completely out from under the writ of mars and by that under the writ of the emperor as well it's a whole bunch of stuff that the lords of zana can now dip into without restraint and speaking of that back over to dave for some more fun stuff yeah so you know what we're talking about here the the gift right so this is the the traditional um ceiling of a pact right this is this is how how do the emissaries like seal this bargain um and it's on the one hand uh the tribute of zana is going to be in these you know relics of old night um you know these stc constructs these macro engines of devastation um and so they're they're really irreplaceable and then on the other hand right the war master right in air quotes right the war master because remember what i got what i you know read at the very beginning of this so um is bringing the 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 remains of istvan you know and the drop site massacre and all these other battlefields and so this this sort of corpse uh field of what, like what Jason said, right? Genecraft and Techno Arcana. But, you know, for the, the sort of the tech priests of Xana who are already a little uh, wayward, right? They're already a little off the reservation. Um, this is a treasure trove in, in terms of technology uh, as well as, um, you know, potential um, gene craft and lore. So, uh, just keep in mind, guys, that all of these things are conspiring together at sort of a critical juncture, and uh, I think we're going to see sort of some of the improbability uh, that's that's to come. But uh, that's all I've got right now. Pat, do you have anything? No, I mean, I, I think you you basically covered it. I mean, you know. Horace is essentially like, hey, I hear you guys like scrap. Here's some scrap. I mean, that's a very childish way to put it, but but you know, like Jason was was pointing out, like we're Horace is is saying, Hey, there's no more leash. All I need is your help. He And I mean a naive part of my brain wants wants to say he he's extending a hand of friendship when really he he wants to control them um but but the way he's he's going about talking to them it probably makes them, i mean pushes pushes them to Horace more because he's saying with me you can do everything with and then of course the sigilite and dorn are on the other side saying hey stop doing that shit Remember your oaths. You don't get to do any cool things. No dessert for you after dinner because you didn't eat your vegetables. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think, so the, you know, I mean, I think what Zan is not, they're not naive, right? I think what they're, oh, they've, of course they've yeah. you know, they've seen what, they've seen what the Imperium has during the Great Crusade, right? Which was, a uh, hundred years of bleeding war stock and material into the void against the Xeno species. And, you know, for the Voidian consistatory, you know, the ruling, you know, um, sort of tech priesthood of Xana, maybe they were in it for the long game. Maybe they were like, okay, we're, you know, we're willing to side with this, this, you know, um, crusade that's going to dominate the stars is going to dominate the galaxy because the long game is eventually this will all be over we'll recoup our losses um and we'll have 
sort of unfettered access to trading partners, material extraction, um, resources, you know, throughout the galaxy. Um, but none of that comes to pass. Uh, the whole dream falls apart. The dream of the, you know, the dream of the Imperium, the dream of the Imperial truth, it falls apart. And at this point, I think the, the, the Voidian consistatory, just like anybody else, right. Would see that maybe it's better to go it alone. You know, maybe if we can just figure out how to, how to break off and, and play these two sides against each other. Um, maybe that's the way to go. And, uh, sort of worked for Zhao Arkad, maybe not totally, but worked a little bit for, for Zhao Arkad. They gave it a good try. Uh, they gave it a good try. <laughs> uh, but uh, all is not to be, right? So um, Dorn's wrath is coming. Um, you know, Malkador's wrath is coming. And, uh, and, and so let's, let's get into that. Ugh, this dick. All right, let's talk about Dorn. <laughs> I am dick. contractually obligated at this point to talk about Dorn. So, uh, very appropriately, this section is called Unwelcome Guests. So, the Cicatrix Tyrannus mm. is incoming. They're entering close orbit of Zana 1 on final approach to the Forge world. So, uh, big problems. Uh, the Auspex grid of the outermost planetary, the uh, outer planetary system comes alive. Crazy alarm signals, uh, emergency deals going off, uh, very close to the gravity shadow of the system's inner sphere. Uh, dump a whole bunch of capital ships, five altogether, uh, Imperial in origin and Loyalist in allegiance. So, uh, heading up is a Gloriana-class battleship called the Amphion. And if you want to go uh, track that down, I'll shed a little light on this. So uh, this, along with these four other capital ships and tons of smaller escort craft and maybe a dozen large transport craft, uh, this really marks that Dorn has, you know, taken it upon himself to cast judgment where he's not wanted or cared about, and that this is a vital part of Terra's actual defense fleet that Dorn has decided is worth the reward of destroying Zana if he cannot bring it over. He would rather destroy it then he would, you know, allow it to be turned over to Horus. However, if you'll remember at the same time, Dorne is also telling the fake fabricator general, uh, Zagreus Kane, that Mars is not worth attacking because it would take too many Legion resources. So I'm kind of feeling like uh, Dorne is making this up as he goes along. And as long as he's confident that nobody will call him on his dumb mistakes. But uh, Dorne's big goofy fleet does not sail in unopposed because massive uh, forge worlds like this are never undefended. So Zana is rising up. Uh, squadrons of frigate-sized machine hunter killers and scores of autonomous weapon platforms are that don't need to be manned by anything, uh, are starting to rise from Zana 1's atmosphere. Uh, hundreds and hundreds of void torpedoes are fired from these platforms uh, with the hunter-killer ships behind them. Uh, Zana itself has plenty of warships, like massive mechanical battle arcs and attack carriers, uh, much larger than defense vessels are normally are uh, there to intercept the Loyalist Assault Force. And what's entertaining is, despite the bravery and skill of the Loyalist navigators who drop the force into real space close enough to be hours rather than days from their intended target, are still able to contest the attack before it reached its goal. 
or at the least close a lethal trap behind the intruders. So, a second uh, <laughs> entertaining bit here. Uh, secondary waves of munitions roar forth from the surface of the Forge World of Zana 2 itself, and its sentinel void battle servitors, giant mechanical kraken the size of strike cruisers, break from their steel shells like hollow moons and power towards the fray. So Zana has this massive fleet uh, all on its own before you even start to factor in uh, the forces around Horus that he's brought um, with Corridon and the Cicatrix Tyrannus. So it's a possibility that Doran has made yet another mistake here. And... Uh, can can we just take a second and ju- just marinate on mechanical kraken the size of strike cruisers? Yeah. So what that makes me think of, I'm sure the crossover between people that listen to our podcast and people that have played Mass Effect is pretty steep. Uh, kind of like the Reapers from Mass Effect. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's what I envision when I hear, like, mechanical space kraken the size of strike cruisers. But uh, this is this is not a Forge world you fuck with. Yeah, most definitely. So that is it for me, guys. No, this that's that's so good. And I think it just makes me realize that the Xana incursion more than anything else just cloaked in so much shadow and um conspiracy that I'm not even sure if Dorn I mean I know we all like to hate on Dorn. I don't really like to hate on Dorn. I don't I don't think he's he's that bad. You know, I think he's like sort of doing his job. He's just not that interesting. But um <laughs> you know, he's just sort of like it's Sorry. just what he is sort of who he is, you know, he's like doing his job. Like he wouldn't be the worst guy in the world if he was like like if he was like your neighborhood, you know, police officer, right? Like he absolutely he, would. Nah, you would he, know what you were getting, man. He would be the guy that like breaks up every party on a noise complaint. <laughs> He'd be, anyway. he'd be the worst resident for an HOA. Is this fair? Absolute worst. It's not fair. saying any of the Primarchs would be good for an HOA. God, think of an HOA made up of Primarchs. But can you imagine what sort of dickhead Dorn would be if he were in charge of an HOA? <laughs> okay. All right. So, Sorry, too much of a rabbit hole. Guys. So, so no, it's my fault. So, um, so and. I'm not even sure that Dorn knows really what's going on because if you look at it, um, there are no, to this point, there are no Legionis Astartes involved in this sort of punitive expedition to Xana, right? You have a Gloriana class uh, battleship, but it's, it's not crewed by uh, Space Marines. It's crewed by Solar Auxilia. Um, and from everything we can tell so far, a slice of the Segmentum Solar's um, solar fleet. So, I mean, we're still early days. We know that Horus is coming, but I don't think he's gotten to the first sphere yet. I don't think he's inside the ring of uh, Pluto and Neptune. So, um, you know, this, I mean, sure, certainly Dorn approved this, at least this, these, you know, this strike attack. But I'm not sure how much else he knows is going on. So uh, that will be very interesting to sort of get into. And I don't know if we should go there yet. I don't. I don't know if if we're ready to go into all the various miscalculations, the you know Archimagos of of Xana, but you got to think, right? There's just got to be this little sliver of your, um, I don't know, split consciousness, you know, your, your tactical, you know, um, partition that 
if if a, if a loyalist punitive strike force shows up at exactly the same time as the traitor delegation, like, like somebody's got some pretty fucking good intel, right? But that just never crosses the the minds of the 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 tech priests of uh, of Xana. They're just like they run the calculations. They're like, no, we have enough uh, orbital. Um, defenses, you know, we have enough, you know, ground-based bombardment. We have enough, the you know, these space kraken uh, that we'll just take care of it. Don't worry about it. Don't Horace, don't worry about it. We've got this covered, right? Um, so, so that's sort of where we are right now. I think that's very interesting. I think that's sort of very interesting and very telling of the hubris that can um, sort of befall the, the Mechanicum. So, I don't well, know. You did mention one thing that I heartily agree with. Uh, Dorn doesn't really know what's going on at this point, but that doesn't stop him from hurling a Gloriana class. I mean, there are like 20 of these in the Imperium, right? Uh, like, yeah. And he's just cramming one. Like, he won't go and take back Mars because supply and demand, Fabricator General, perhaps you've heard of it. Like the dumbest ass line in an otherwise terrific novella. But he'll send an Amphion, the Amphion, across to what we've firmly established is like the galactic boonies in order to blow up Zana. This makes no sense. And Doran's so, plans are stupid. It's a really great point. Um, that's a really great point. And I think in sort of the novel or the novella, it was a cybernetica, right? Um, cybernetica. Yep. Dorn, uh, sort of disapproves of a full on, he was basically going to exterminate Mars, right? But he does approve of a small clandestine strike force inserting itself into Mars by small. Well, I mean, one guy. He did <laughs> yeah. want to exterminate us Mars, and then Malkador brought up the point of, well, two-thirds of Mars has already turned for Horus. If you want to make sure every single other Forge world in the galaxy right. turns to Horus, right. go ahead and exterminate us Mars, because you're basically wiping out the Mecca of the Mechanicum's religion. Yeah, yeah and that's, it's, that's a great point, man. And I think, you know, maybe we see some echoes of that here, you know, I mean, you know, Malkador for, for all of his sort of failings, right. Um, the council of Nikea being the biggest of them, but, uh, but he's not dumb. And so he definitely sort of understands espionage and he understands clandestine warfare and he understands, um, you know, needing to needing to be able to, because at this point, and we talked about this in the, in the previous episodes, this is not a war of attrition that the loyalist forces can can win. Not not right now, right? So they've got a delay. They've got a delay. They have to deny war stock. They've got to deny materiel. Um, they've got to slow that spearhead decapitation strike down, right? They've got to slow down the war master who just wants to drive directly to um, the throne world, right? And, and challenge the emperor. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, look, man, I'm not going to say Dorn's the, uh, this genius uh, because I don't think he is. Um, but, uh, but, but yeah. I mean, somehow Malkador convinced him, or if not, then Malkador's got some sneaky, sneaky ways of, you know, suborning a Gloriana-class battleship and being like, yeah, man, need you to go on a little uh, little secret mission for me. I mean, Dorne is essentially the the war master of the, the Loyalists, so I mean, it would make sense that he had the ability to call it, but, but yeah, it, it's, it's but overkill. In the oh, no. other direction, this is at least twice now, probably more if we went back a little and were specifically looking for it. But this is twice very obviously that Malkador has had to come in behind Dorn 
and kind of clean up after his like chest beating and grandstanding. Because starting out with this, Dorn came in all hot and bothered, yelling about destroying Zana if they didn't come over. <laughs> Malkador had to send in, you know, some agents to be like, hey, hey, like I know, you know, I know that was a whole bunch of loud shit talking, but like, you know, we, we you don't you don't want any of this stuff to happen. Let's see what, what kind of deal we can work out. Exact same thing, but Horus doesn't have that equivalent. He doesn't he's he knows how you know politics like this work he doesn't just storm in and kick over chairs and demand his way that's why he's the war master right that is he's, why he's the war master he's he's bore, he's both dorn and malkador he is i think it was really poignant in the beginning of um dan abnett's book number 20 uh no no fear the opening lines of that is something to the effect of it could only have ever been Horus or Gulliman. And I think this is a terrific highlight of why it definitely was not Dorn. <laughs> yeah. 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 All right, I'm done crapping on Dorn. No, it's good. It's a great place. It's a great place to uh to end, I think, right? Um yeah. And so, so yeah. I think uh, next week, uh, listeners, uh, if you're following along in your in your book uh, six, we'll be uh, covering, I guess, a uh, false war to uh, the wrath of the betrayed. Right? Sounds like a plan. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yes. There, there will be no esoterica in this episode. Sorry for that, but Jason did pull out all the stops for. The Solar Ox coverage, let's be honest. He, he, it, was, it was a mess. It was a lot of big ones. It was a lot of big ones. <laughs> there was a few gripes, but it was a lot of big ones. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I think, Dave, do you have anything uh, else to add? Just, uh, guys, if you're interested in going a little bit further down the rabbit hole, um, think about signing up for uh, Patreon. Uh, it's I think our lowest tier is like $3 and gets you access to a ton of stuff, but including um, some syllabus uh, show notes and some questions that I think are thought provoking that as I'm sort of putting the show notes together with Pat and Jason, you know, I'll think, Hey, what does this really mean? And I'll sort of throw it out there as sort of a thought provoking question and uh, you'll get those at least a week before, if not two weeks before everyone else gets the episode. And so, uh, yeah. And then mm-hmm. who knows? Um, I would also love to say uh, that if you really like Heresy Grad School, um, you don't have to become a Patreon. That's fine. Uh, but just send us a shout out on social media, right? Like Facebook or or whatever Instagram or whatever social media you do, um, and just say, "Hey, man, I like it and want to see more of it, and would love to, you know, whatever you would like to see us cover next. That would be that'd be pretty cool." Yeah, um, Jason. Uh, let's see. Uh, I would like to call out a small plug for my buddy Ben Marsh and the Maryland Thirty K Bunch. <laughs> Uh, if you listen to the main cast, you hear Ryan uh, from that bunch of dudes all the time. Just got back from uh, Ben's amazing Williamsburg muster a couple of weekends ago, and uh, I appreciate him uh, putting it together every year. Those were some amazing scenarios and amazing games. And if any of our listeners in the, I guess, Central Virginia area have a chance to go to the muster or the call to arms. The call to arms happens in the fall um, and the muster happens in the spring. Do that it. Sounds right. Yeah. Um, ben yeah, does a fantastic we a job. Of, we got people from like the Carolinas to Pennsylvania, like coming in for that business and it was well worth it. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. Um, I won uh Best narrative, so that was kind of fun. Absolutely. Your spooky mechanicum. Yep. Uh, many people complained about the amount of thralls that I brought. I bring uh, 50 thralls every single game. 
it is a frustrating amount of thrills. Yep. And they're going to ruin your day. <laughs> uh, Good times. Yeah. But uh, like Dave said, please give us a shout out, guys. Um, we love hearing from you. I, I love seeing how many likes we get on uh, whenever we post an episode. Um, you know, we, we, we love doing this stuff as much as you guys probably love hearing about this stuff. Um, which I hope is, is a lot. Cause if it isn't, then, then clearly we're not in the right game. Um, but, uh, thank you all so much for listening and, uh, that's it for us. Now, uh, fuck off, Craig. Beat it, Craig, you creeper.